What does Colgate mean by live life to the brightest? Could it be a rich glass of red sipped inside a Parisian cafe on a snowy night when my gaze is met by a tall, mysterious... I mean, brushing is directed with Colgate Optic White Pro Series Toothpaste gives you a visibly whiter smile in just three days so you can live life to the brightest and finish that glass without worrying about teeth stains. Colgate Optic White. Find it at all major retailers. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello everyone, welcome back to New Books and Literature, a channel on the New Books Network podcast. I'm your host, Crawford Gribben, and today my guest is Paul Kingsnorth. Paul is the author of several books of poetry, essays and commentary, including Real England and Confessions of a Recovering Environmentalist, as well as three novels, The Wake, which was listed for the Man Booker Prize in 2014, Beast, and Alexandria. We're talking today about Alexandria, just published in the US by Grey Wolf Press and forthcoming in the UK from Faber. Paul, congratulations on the book and welcome to the show. Thanks, Crawford, and thanks for having me along. It's really great uh, that we can have you today. Before we begin talking about the novel, would you be able to share a passage of it that we could listen to? I will. I will do that. Um, I'll give you a bit of context before I do. We'll talk about the book a bit more in a minute. But this is a book which is um, set some considerable time in the future. Um, the register in which people speak, obviously, is rather different to the register we speak now. Um, but also the book is, uh, it contains its own mythology, if you like, as all of my novels do, actually. But um, what I'm going to read here is um, a couple of sections of a, a sort of canto that runs through the book, which is, um, which is uh, the mythology of the, of the group who the book is based around. So it's, it's a kind of creation myth, if you like for the, 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 the state of humankind as it has as it has ended up in about a thousand years from now. Back then, all land was halt, all halt was whites, man and deer, fox and brock, lion and wolf, cat and boar, as one in peace. But one was broke, a true world's making, one black beast low and creeping, deep in halt his great world tree. At its roots, curling, winding, still silent, breathing low, old serpent. Now old serpent, waking slow, winding up around roots, through clay, into air, calling now, calling quiet. Man, man, come to me, for I bring gifts. Back then man comes. Mind running, fingers curling, man walking, man working, man seeing old serpent. Man said, what is this that has no form? What is this unclean and dark, twining low round oldest tree? This is no holy thing. And serpent says, there is no holy thing, man, but you. And man says, this is not way. And what are you? You are no thing of this ground. You have no arms, you have no legs, you have no hair, and from your tongues come broken words. And Serpent said, I am no thing of this ground. I am thing from under it. I am thing from before world's making. I am thing from outside way. 
I bring truth from underground. Come, man, come, climb world tree, and from its crown, then you will see. Then man climb in great world tree, and serpent binding limb to branch with his long black body. Man hangs on tree, nine days and nights, calling, crying, crying, calling. All whites of land came round him, saying, something is coming. Back then on tenth day, come with light then, great black bird, beak of blood and eyes of fire. No bird of earth, no bird of Erka. It circles tree, calls in speech that no white knew. Then serpent unbinding man, man falls down back to clay. Back then, all whites gathered round man. Fox nuzzled, nuzzled him, Brock found him food, lion lay in with him, giving him heat. Then man opening his eyes, then man lived. Then man stood on legs tall with new fire and new eyes. Now man looking through new eyes at Holt, and looking now at whites before him, and man saying, I have seen new story. I have seen that way is not true. I have seen world must be broken. For inside is white fire of truth. Only in broken things is truth found. And man said, Now I shall seek fire. Now I shall walk in white light of my making. Land and sea, clay and waters, birds and white shall bend to me. Fire of my seeking will cover all things and make world as it should be. Then tears come into all whites in halt for what had come and would. Now all crying, calling, Man, do not leave us. Man, do not go. And man saying, Whites, I am gone far these nine days and nights. For me, there is no return. That's wonderful, okay. Paul. Thank you so much. It's, 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 right. a, it's a great, it's a great um, sequence of extracts, isn't it? Because it opens so much up about the novel, but also about your broader writing career to date, seeing new stories um, and, and seeing things new. How did you come to see things new as a writer? Well, that's a good question, isn't it? Um, I, I often say that, I think this might be true of a lot of writers, I end up relentlessly telling the same story over and over again in different forms for about 25 years. <laughs> I've done 10 books now, and actually they're all variants on the story. Um, and actually that's, as you say, quite a good summary of the story that I write about, which is the breaking of the link between humans and the rest of the natural world, the rest of the wild world, which is also a breaking of the link, I think, between the human world and, and, and the, the divine, if you like, as manifested in, in, in the wild world, as, as, as manifested in our desire, our desire to kind of leave the rest of nature and, and strike out on our own. Um, and I don't know that that's a new story. In fact, it's a very old story um, that I've somehow sort of intuited since I was a child and have sort of struggled all my life as a writer to try and put into words. In a lot of different ways, I first started off as an, as an activist writer. I was an environmental campaigner. For a long time, I got into that at university, having kind of fallen in love with the natural world as a child. I wanted to try and do something about it when I became a student, got politicized, as a lot of students do, became a road protester and an activist and an anti-globalization activist and all sorts for many years. And I wrote I wrote about that. I wrote books uh, from that perspective. Um, and then I, I around 10 years ago, things changed a bit for me. Um, and I realized that a lot of this activism wasn't working broadly speaking that the chances of changing yeah there's plenty of things you can do with activism on a local or even a national scale but in terms of the big picture um you know things are not turning around realistically the way that the, the industrial machine is going is not going to be turned around by anything i think probably that we can do voluntarily at this point um 
And that led me to start the Dark Mountain Project. And that's uh, an international collective of writers and artists who are looking for new stories or at least new ways of telling old stories. Um, and the idea behind that was that we are living in quite an apocalyptic time now, literally in the sense that apocalypse means unveiling. You know, we're unveiling things about our culture that we are uncomfortable with seeing. Um, and we're living in an age of climate change and mass extinction and forest destruction and, and catastrophic unsustainability, as it were, on all levels. Uh, but writers, in many cases, certainly when we started the project, are not really writing as if this was true. We're writing as if it were sort of a blip on our road towards permanent progress rather than something which changes everything. And I actually think it does. The state of the world at the moment changes everything, including the way we ought to be writing about it. So that's sort of what I've tried to do, I suppose, in some ways through my novels, is to meet the challenge that we set when we started the Dark Mountain Project, which is to ask what stories would we be telling now as writers and human beings if we took this situation seriously? You know, if we actually wrote as if we were living in this radically apocalyptic age, which I think we are, how would we write and how would we live? Um, and as I say, yeah, I think the novels I've been writing are one one attempt to answer that question. If I could just push back a little bit on that, Paul. Obviously, you, your writing includes books like Real England, which you know caused a huge amount of discussion when it came out back about what must be about fifteen years ago now, just over. And um, as as you think about themes of nationhood and and culture and economics in that book, do you see those themes running through your other writing as well? Um, yeah, I mean, in that's a, so that's a non-fiction book came out in two thousand and eight. And that was very much about how the global economic machine, the process of global capitalism, really global consumerism was, was erasing local cultures in England, which is the country I come from. Um, and it was a follow up in some ways to the book I'd written a few years before, which was called One No Many Yeses. And that was a global travelogue. And that was a look at how global capitalism was, was sort of killing off cultures and communities around the world and how people were resisting it. Mainly, that was a, really a book about resistance to that situation from, you know, the Zapatistas to the the people in the townships in South Africa to the protests in the streets of Europe. Um, and it was really, it's, it is, the, the themes do run through all of my work, yes, because it's, as I say, it's about the relationship between, my work is about the relationship between humans and the wild world that we've walked away from, but also what it means to be part of human culture, maybe part of a nation as well. What do these things mean? Um, I mean, the question that Real England asked was, what is England? If its local cultures are erased, you know, that's, that's a, that's a wider question. What is any country if its local cultures are erased? I've always been fundamentally a localist politically. And I think that any culture is only as good as its local communities and its local places and the way that it nurtures them. Patrick Kavanagh, the Irish poet said, um, you know, all culture begins with a particular. All culture is parochial, actually, literally in the sense that, you know, if you don't have a healthy parish, a very, very local small place, then you haven't got a nation. Um, so, yeah, and that is that is certainly a question that runs through the novels in a slightly different form as well. You know, what does it mean to be a people in a place, um, especially if you're undermining the foundations of, of the place and and the community? So, yeah, that's uh, that's a sort of wider theme as well. Mm. Well, w- w- when you began writing um, the novels back with uh, The Wake and then following into The uh, Beast and then into Alexandria that we're talking about today, d- did you conceive of this project as a trilogy in its formation? No, I didn't actually. Um, I started writing The Wake, which, as you say, is a book set during the Norman Conquest. Um, and I wrote that. I mean, I started writing that about 10 years ago, actually, just after I finished Real England. I came across a book um, 
by a historian called Peter Rex, which was called The English Resistance. And I thought, that's an interesting title. I wonder what that's about. And it was about the guerrilla war that was fought by the English after the Norman Conquest, which I hadn't ever heard about. You don't learn it in school. You learn about the conquest and then you kind of move on to the Middle Ages. And I hadn't realized that there was, you know, the equivalent of the French resistance against against German occupation going on in, in the woods and in the villages of England for 10 years. And I thought, well, that's a good story. I wonder what that would be like told from the perspective of someone who was engaged in it. Um, and so that's the story I told. Books are strange things. They start to behave in ways that you don't expect. So what, what was almost a, a political piece of sort of political historical writing could have, if I were, if, if I was lucky, it didn't turn into an English Braveheart actually, but it didn't. <laughs> I, mean, I deliberately, I deliberately avoided that fate by making my central character hideous. Um, but, you know, what that turned out to be actually was also a, a, a novel full of mythology and and uh, and tales about the, the relationship between people and, and, and the wild the wild country that they lived in. So that turned out to be uh, a much wider mythological book about uh, yeah resistance to invasion, effectively. Um, and, I, yeah, it, hadn't, it wasn't intended to be part of a trilogy at all. I wrote it in its own language. It was quite hard to write, though it was fun. I had no intention of ever doing anything like that again when I finished but it wasn't long after I finished that I thought, wouldn't it be interesting to trace this story across time? Because as I say, The Wake is about relationship between people and place. The central character in The Wake has such a kind of intense, uh, self-loving relationship with what he imagines his culture is that it ends up destroying him. He's so fixated on a particular notion of what England is, and he's also fixated on a notion of, of being a hero that he's he ends up, with neither of those things and he ends up you know, destroying a lot of things that he claims to value. So there's a, it's, a, it's an exploration of what it means and what, a, what, what the opportunities and dangers are in that kind of connection. So I thought, okay, well, let's trace this, let's trace this man's line over 2000 years and see what happens. So I'm going to do three books. I'm going to do the wake and then I'm going to do another book set today, a thousand years later, and then a final book set in a thousand years time. And they're very different books in many ways. You can read them all separately but the themes are the same. They trace the same family line over time. They mostly trace the same place and its relationship with the people as well. And the thing I haven't mentioned perhaps is that the, in all of these books, the place is very much alive. There's a sentient landscape, if you like, throughout this whole book, because another one of my great themes is that the natural world is very much more alive than we think it is. Uh, it's not just a landscape or a backdrop that human characters can have adventures in. It's, it's part of the story. And it changes things and it reacts to us and it gives and takes from us as well. So that was another thing that I wanted to explore. So no, it wasn't, it wasn't a plan is the answer to your question, but it ended up being sort of 10 years of my life. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Uh, um, and it's an amazing read when they are read back to back because so many of the themes and, and images and so on drift between the books in such evocative ways. Buckmaster, the, the, the central character family, I suppose, that you trace, um, but also notions of, of speaking animals, especially birds, um, um, the Wayland um, character theme idea that runs through. don't want to give too much away about Alexandria, but how, how do you construct that kind of almost cosmic 
um, superstructure for for these individual for these individual novels? Yeah, it's a good question, and it did develop quite organically. I think if I'd sat down to plan it, it wouldn't have been nearly as as convincing or interesting. A lot of it kind of emerged. What I tried to do, having written The Wake, when I started to write Beast, I thought, okay, well, this is also a relationship between a man and a place, but very, very different to The Wake. I mean, Beast literally just has one character in it all the way through. You're never quite sure whether anything that's happening to him is is real, whatever that means. Um, It's very much a a relationship between a man and his mind as much as a man and anything else. So, but the, the as you say, the imagery, the, the, the landscape imagery, the creatures who appear, they're very, um, very deliberately taken from the wake and woven into the story. And by the time you get to Alexandria, which is much more similar to the wake than it is to beast beast is the, is the kind of black sheep of the trilogy. If you like, it's a very different kind of book in all sorts of ways, but I'm able to, to, to wind the story, especially the story of the, the 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 kind of mythical world of the wake, I'm able to wind it back into into beast in, into Alexandria and give it a conclusion that maybe isn't expected or certainly wasn't planned. Um, yeah, so it's um, it's something that emerged organically, but I was always quite careful to use certain images. I won't say what they are particularly, but there are certain images, there are certain lines, there are certain phrases that deliberately repeat and call back all the way through the book. Um, all the way through all three books, actually, there are particular phrases that always appear, particular creatures that always appear, particular images from mythology that always appear. They're 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 kind of following this family line all the way through the through the centuries, and uh, giving them things, offering them things, making demands of them that kind of change the way that they relate to the world. And religion matters too, Paul, doesn't it? So in in the wake. Um, as you say, it's very much poised in the, the balance of the Norman Conquest and the Buckmaster character is very concerned to preserve what he remembers of the older religion in, in the face of this almost totalitarian, rapacious invasion of, 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 of Christianity and its institutions. By the time we come to the Beast, um, the, a church is quite central to that, a church building is quite central to it. The character both appreciates it, somehow feels himself outside it perhaps at points, but it's always vacant and then, of course, religion has an important role in Alexandria too. Um, are, are, do you see yourself as a religious writer or as a, a writer about religion? Well, you know, I think I do see myself as a religious writer these days. I think I always, in some ways, it's interesting, you know, because this is a central theme of the of the, of the trilogy. Um, I mean, it's, it depends what you mean by religious, I suppose. It's, uh, I don't want to use the word spiritual because it sounds a bit too new age, doesn't it? But, it, I mean, it, it's fundamentally a series of books of at least in part about the religious experience, the human experience of the divine and the need to connect to it. And the fact that actually that is central to every culture. And it's interesting what you say about the empty church, actually, because in, in the wake, absolutely central to the book. And interestingly, this wasn't what I intended to write about when I first thought about this book, I didn't think about the religious aspect, but it turned out that the central character is one of the last kind of pagans, one of the last Anglo-Saxon worshippers of the old house, as he calls it, the old gods. And, you know, Christianity has been in England for a long time by the 11th century. But, but I imagined, and it might be true, that there were still pockets of the old ways clinging on. And Buckmaster sees absolutely the the twin kind of invasions of the Christian religion, which he sees as this foreign religion of the book that has nothing to do with the place he's in. And, of course, the Normans turning up and seizing the land and and seizing the kingdom. So he sees these as these two threats to his relationship to his sense of nationhood and his relationship to his place. Um and so it's fundamentally religion. You, religious. You've got these two 
religious worldviews you know, going up against each other in the wake. Um, but the, the, the faith, if you like, the gods are central to wherever you come in. With Beast, you've got a man who is as, yeah, he's, he's, you know, he's a contemporary man. He's one of us, right? So he's run, he's run from the cities. He's run from the modern world, from the machine. And he's trying to find something in some of the last wild places in England. He doesn't really know even what he's trying to find or what the hell he's doing. He doesn't have a structure for it. As you say, the church is empty. He doesn't have a religion. He doesn't quite know what he's looking for. He finds something or it finds him without wanting to give too much away. Uh, and again, it's very much tied up with the, 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 the living landscape, you know, the stories and the religion come through the living landscapes in these books. So the land will give you what you need if you know how to listen to it. It might not be what you want uh, and it might not be something you enjoy very much, but it will be what you need. But as you say, the church is empty. There's no form for his, his quest at all because that's where we are. And in the future, again, the beast, Alexandria is the most explicitly uh, at the center of Alexandria is a religious order. You know, the central characters are living in a small remnant religious order a thousand years from now on the, on the flooded fens of Eastern England. So that's very specifically, uh, quite paganistic, but also actually quite Christian religious order, but quite deliberately syncretic. It's constructed of a lot of bits of various faiths that exist in England now. Ones that I have experienced of Christianity, various paganisms, a bit of Sikhism in there bit of uh, Sufis, all sorts of stuff hanging around in there. Um, and it's, it's an earth religion and it's, and it's, you know, set up to specifically resist the kind of the, the machine thinking that's been, that's been trailing all of these characters. So in a way there's a, there's a story, a, a dualism all the way through these books. There's a kind of uh, a sense of the divine that comes through the place you're in, a sense of God that can relate you to the land that you're in, wherever that is, versus this kind of tyrannical, machine culture that is about self-worship and materialism and uh, and you know growth growth at any cost effectively so there's that kind of eternal battle going on so yeah it is it is very much a religious trilogy in that sense mm. and that's interestingly something that no reviewer picks up on or hasn't done until recently which has always interested me very very few people actually spot that certainly in the mainstream anyway more people in the margins tend to spot it more but it's interesting. It was kind of hiding in plain sight there. <laughs> Life is good in the margins. Um, oh, well, it was more interesting, exactly. Yeah. Well, you made the point there, Paul, about the, the similarity between uh, The Wake and Alexandria and the, the way in which Beast is sort of a little bit different from, from both. Are you making a point there in terms of form and content about the connectedness or disconnectedness of past, present and future? Sort of, yeah. I mean, it's not, again, it's a point that's organic rather than planned from the beginning. But I mean, I wanted to write a book, about, I wanted to write a book in, in which there was just one person and, and a place. I wanted to see if I could do that. Um, I had very particular ideas. I mean, that's structured around a, a very particular spiritual quest, a very particular form of uh, actually a particularly Buddhist form that I was involved in at the time, um, quite deliberately, specifically structured around that. So I wanted to write a, a, a very lonely book, actually, with just one person in one person in a place. Um, but as you say, there's also a very deliberate painting of of a time that's quite broken. I mean, everybody's living in a broken time, right? These are all apocalyptic novels. They're all about people dealing with collapses of one kind or another, whether they're personal or national or ecological or all of those things, cultural, whatever it is. All the people at the center of these books feel like they are experiencing a collapse in their familiar worlds. Um, and forces are rushing into them that they don't know how to control. Um, 
but yes, Beast is is very. It's a very lonely book. Actually, it's a very lonely kind of broken book. And as I say, this man at the centre of this book doesn't really have any help for the, for the quest he's on. There's no f- structure for it, and that feels like very much where you are in a modern country like Britain today. For a lot of people, anyway, you know, if you want to, if you want to go looking for the truth, where do you even start? Um, so that's yeah, that's that's and it is it is a break. It's a very different book from the other two. You mentioned that that these are novels of apocalypse in different kinds of ways. Um, we're recording this podcast in November 2020 when on both sides of the Irish border where we are located, there are various kinds of lockdowns in place. Um, a, a lot of your writing thinks about how societies change over time. Um, it's one of the points that you make in your fiction that crisis is normal. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know if it's a point. I try not to make points, so I probably do it anyway because I'm quite opinionated. But yes, I mean, absolutely. One of the things I'm trying to do with this trilogy is say, look, you can you can pick out any point in history and something is collapsing. Now, I don't want to use that to sort of play down the situation we're in now, actually, because I think it's quite unique. I don't think, you know, we haven't had to deal with climate change before. We've got all sorts of problems which actually are pretty unprecedented in human history. Nevertheless, you know, the, the rise and fall of nations, the rise and fall of cultures, invasions, uh, worldviews falling apart, religions being replaced by other religions. I mean, it's the story of human history everywhere in the world. And I'm examining those kind of rise and falls in a very small part of the world, which just happens to be my part, you know, part of a small part of England. Um, so, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the other there are two things, I suppose, which are related. One of them is that absolutely that kind of upheaval is eternal. So there's no point in history you can go to and probably find peace in that sense, in, in the sense of an unchanging world. Um yeah, but at the same time, um, at the same time, there's a kind of uh, spiritual depth that people are trying to trying to connect to. There's a sense of um, something higher than themselves, in which they're they're seeking maybe shelter from that, but also also truth as well. So we come to the third of third installment in the trilogy. Given everything we said about apocalypse, it's probably not an ending as such, um, mm. but but a beginning or, or, or the possibility at least is raised. But where does this take you in your writing, Paul, from here on out? What what might be your next plan? Yeah, well, that's the question, isn't it? I feel like I'm sort of um, I feel like I just got divorced <laughs> after a ten year marriage. <laughs> it's kind of it's a bit strange. Um, I don't know, honestly. I mean, I think these are three very intense, quite distinctive novels. They're all written in their own language, in a way, or their own version of English. Um, I don't seem to know how to write fiction in normal English anymore, which is probably a bit of a handicap. Um, I think I'm quite alienated from the mainstream world of literature, whatever the hell that is. doesn't feel like it's something I'm part of. I don't know, honestly. I mean, I feel like that's the, the end of this novel very tightly and carefully closes itself up with the beginning again. So it's like a closed circle, this trilogy. And I don't know what I'll write next. I, I think it probably won't be like this. Um, I imagine, given how predictable I am, that the themes will probably inhabit whatever I write again, because I don't seem to be able to write about anything else. I'd like to go and write a book about flower arranging or something, you know, that's a bit more relaxing, but I I don't think it's going to happen. I don't think think I'm fated to do that. So I don't know, honestly. Um, I wrote a book a couple of years ago, a little nonfiction book called Savage Gods, which actually was about losing my faith in writing, um, which was a, a sort of situation I went through in the middle of writing Alexandria of just feeling like written words beyond a certain point. And, you know, Alexandria is a very mythic book. It's really attempting to break into a world that in some ways words can't get into. And I, I felt like 
But if you spend your whole life in written words, you can feel that they start to veil the world rather than revealing it. So I wrote this little book, which is a question, a giant question. What is the point of writing? What's the value of this? What does it show us? Does it get in the way? What can it do and what can't it do? Um, and after I'd finished Alexandria, I didn't write anything for a year. Uh, and I'm still not writing much. I've done the odd short story here and there, but I'm not, I haven't got a big project on at the moment. So I don't know what will happen next. Um, but I think things are probably reordering themselves inside me in some way. So we'll, we'll see. But I'm not rushing. Well, we can't wait to see what you come up with next, Paul. Uh, I've been reading your work for a while, but in the last month, I've been reading virtually nothing else uh, as I've gone back through things. Uh, And it's been an extraordinary immersive experience, actually. Um, Hugely, a hugely, an extraordinary learning experience in so so many ways. So thank you for your work and thank you for your time and coming to speak with us today. No, well, thanks for yours. I really appreciate it. And thanks to everyone else for listening in today. I'll see you next time on New Books and Literature, a channel on the New Books Network podcast.